pray because we have a text to dive into today that though it is short, I believe it is important and beautiful and deep. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have gathered us here today by your sovereign hand, Lord, that each and every one of those here among us has been intended to be so by your will. Lord, we thank you for um, the fact that you know each of us. Lord, that you know our aches. Lord, you know our agonies. Father, you know our pain and you know our joys and pleasures. Father God, we pray that you would work in us as we approach your word today. Father God, would it have its set effect to change the hearts of sinners, to grow and conform those made in your image into your true image, Christ Jesus. Lord God, we pray that you would use this time and that you would minister to our souls through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now would all of you please, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. So today we are going to be looking at the final topic of our Advent series. Some of you may be aware that we've been in an Advent series. I had the blessing of launching us off a few weeks back when we began to study the Word became flesh. And what we were wanting to do is peer into what it means that Christ is man. So we've been considering what is significant about the fact that Christ rose to life, that he, sorry, pardon, that he came, that he lived, that he died, and now today we approach that he rose to life as a man. What is significant considering his bodily resurrection, and what are the implications then moving forward? In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this very question. The entirety of the chapter is focused on the resurrection. And so it's going to be very, very helpful to gain some context. So our passage that we'll be working through together is verses 20 through 23. But I will go ahead and be reading verses 1 through 28. If you could please follow along as I read aloud and we, uh, we study God's word together. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 28. Now... I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of, pe- we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Aren't you glad I'm not trying to cover the whole thing? It's a lot and it's lengthy, but it's beautiful and essential. As we study the word become flesh, we cannot stop at his death. For Christ as a man was raised to life. So here we will be exploring Paul's words as he begins to confront a heresy that was springing up in this first Corinthian church. Apparently, there's been some kind of dissension, some kind of debate that has sparked up about whether or not there is a physical, bodily resurrection. Now this, if you might be aware, is not the first time we've heard a debate over this. Rather, we've seen such a debate among the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We see this in Acts 23.8. And we see this referenced in Mark 12.18. However, now this same debate has come about amidst the Corinthian church. And Paul will have none of it. Thus, he writes chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians to address this very issue. And he spends verses 1 through 19 showing that the bodily resurrection of Christ as a man has been essential to his proclaimed gospel. And he gives us seven terrible implications if there is no such reality as a bodily resurrection. So he begins with verse 1, simply reminding them what he has already told them. He's simply giving a historical reminder to them that he came to them, that he preached that which was of first importance. And what is numbered among the first? That Christ died, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day. And we find it important that on 
During that resurrection time, he appeared to many, many of which whom were still alive at this time. He says in verse 11, Whether then it was I or they, meaning other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. So not only is he speaking about the resurrection, but this is not a defense of the historical resurrection in the sense of apologetics. He is writing to believers who have held to the gospel, who have seen its truth, and are now living contrary to it. And now Paul stands in absolute befuddlement as to what is going on in the Corinthian church. And his confusion comes to a head in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And then he spends the rest of the chapter setting his people straight. Those who have heard the good news are now living contrary to it and believing contrary to it. So he will make abundantly clear and he will make absolutely understandable that there is an indivisible nature between Christ's bodily resurrection as a man and the future resurrection of his people. With this then, as we seek to understand uh, what Paul is saying here, we will actually be finding Paul's answers to the questions that we have posed during this series. I'll give you a few questions that we've asked. Let's just do one. Why is it significant that Christ was raised as a man? Paul in this text, verses 20 through 23, is going to give us three essential implications. Three imperative points that will help us to understand the significance of the word being raised as flesh. And I will give them to you now for those of you who like to take notes. Number one, we will see that Christ being raised to life as a man shows us that sins have truly been forgiven in Christ. Point number two. Christ being raised to life as a man shows us the type of future resurrection that awaits those who belong to him. And finally, the third implication. Christ being raised to life as a man shows us how there can be forgiveness of sins and hope of a future resurrection. Let's see Paul's first point. Christ being raised to life as a man shows us that sins have truly been forgiven in Christ. He begins this explanation in verse 20 when he says with a bold statement, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He makes perfectly clear that the bodily resurrection of the man Christ has decidedly, historically, verifiably been accomplished. Christ, as a man, has raised from the dead. And by doing so, he has shown that sins have truly been forgiven. Now, where do we see this? Well, he's actually making a counterpoint. 
in the beginning here of verse 20, he is contesting an alternative opinion, one that he expressed in verse 17. So look back with me to verse 17 of the same chapter. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So Paul is making a correction here. When he says, but in fact, he's not just trying to make an apologetic proclamation. Rather, he is contesting an alternative theology. He has been allowing the reader to play with the what if of the resurrection. In verse 17, he told them that if there is no resurrection of man, then the man, Jesus Christ, did not raise. And if the man, Jesus Christ, did not raise, then his death was no more satisfying of a sacrifice than the blood of goats and sheep. But now, he changes direction. We are done playing around, and he tells the Corinthians, you say there's no resurrection of man, and this is a problem. Why? Because it has already happened. He even goes into the fact that Christ has been seen by so many witnesses. He belabors the point in verses 5 through 8. He is telling them that for them to hold the belief that there is no resurrection of man is utter foolishness. Because this is exactly what happened with Christ. Because he was raised as a man. So with this proclamation in verse 20 he says you are not still in your sins why because but in fact christ has been raised from the dead the resurrection of the man christ means that sins are truly forgiven Paul makes clear the fact to the Corinthians that Christ's sacrifice for sins, which he proclaimed as first importance, and they accepted, has accomplished the forgiveness of sins. For he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification, according to Romans 4.25. This means his death was certainly the payment of sins, but his resurrection is what applied the payment to us. Therefore, Paul makes the point that Christ being raised to life as a man shows us that sins have truly been forgiven in Christ. Now let's consider for a moment, were Jesus to be raised only as God? Then this robs man of his ability to have resurrection counted as his own. Why is this? Well, that is exactly what Paul is going to get at here in this next statement. And so this leads us to point number two. Christ has been raised to life as a man. And this shows us the type of future resurrection that awaits those who belong to it is because Jesus died, was buried, and was raised as a man that he could in fact become the firstfruits of all other men. If you're wondering what I mean, let me explain. He says it this way, that Christ has been the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now with this, he calls his reader's attention back to Leviticus 23. 
he calls their minds back to the fact that this has been done. And that this has been pointed to all along. In Leviticus 23, 9-11, he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits. The first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Here Paul is pointing to the fact that Christ, in his death and resurrection, was indeed a type of first fruits. So this was the very first part of a harvest. The Israelites would go out amidst their fields and they would begin plucking from the field. And then they would take this, the first fruits, and bring it to the priest. A form of dedicating that which God has given to them back to him. This was a form of worship and submission to his provision. And Paul is using then this idea to point to something that took place in Christ. You see, when they would bring the first fruits to the Lord, it represented the whole harvest. It was as if they had brought every single grain. Therefore, Paul is now using this to point to the reality that Jesus, in his resurrection, is the representative of the whole harvest of believers who would trust in him. By Christ's death as a sacrifice to God, in God's eyes, those who believe in Christ have also died. Now, this is foundational and essential to the entirety of the gospel. When Jesus Christ died, he did so as the sacrifice that represented the rest of those who would trust in him. On the day Christ died, this means I died. If you're in Christ Jesus, then as Jesus hung on the cross, dear friend, your life, your plans, your preferences, your ruling of your life in your way as you see fit, along with your sins, died. Therefore, also as he was raised, in the same sense, those who trust in Christ will inalterably be raised. As sure as Christ Jesus has already been raised to eternal life, so now also those who follow after him, or as verse 23 phrases it, those who belong to him will be raised to life. The past resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection are not two separate events. They're one event with two different times. In fact, this this actually goes to show something quite interesting. That Christ was raised as a man and therefore this actually means 
that essential to those in Christ Jesus, man must be resurrected. Why? Because he is a part of a greater whole. His resurrection necessitates that there are more to come. Why? Because he is but the first fruits. He is a representative of all that is to follow. This assumes then there's more to follow. He has become the promise that those who are in him, those who are of the same crop, will also be raised to life. But wait, Paul's not merely showing that there is a guarantee for disciples of Christ Jesus to have some kind of resurrection. In, in fact, there's debate over whether that was even the debate here. The debate was not that there's an afterlife. The debate was over a physical resurrection. He is saying that Christ, being raised to life as a man, also shows what type of future resurrection that awaits those who belong to him. Why? Because if he is our first fruits, meaning that he is of the same harvest as we are, then he is not raised up in a way that we are not. Rather, we can expect that our resurrection will be in the same manner as his. We will have real, physical, touchable, glorified human bodies that will be truly us. We're not raised in some sort of spiritual sense only, as many believe. Here we see that the eternal state is not going to be comprised of bodiless spirits that mill about in some kind of ethereal floating existence. This is something that I believe that we often get thoroughly wrong. Certainly, we here in this local body, I doubt could find among us someone who would legitimately deny there is a resurrection. It, it would most likely be hard to find one among us that would believe such a thing. No, we don't do that. But what might we do? Have you ever thought about what, it, what we might do? That whether we like it or not denies the resurrection. I mean not to pick on anyone in particular. But have you ever thought about what a bucket list truly is? This idea that before I die, I need to make sure to squeeze and wring out absolutely as much as possible from this world and life that I can. What am I truly seeing death as? Is it my final release to my true and full home? with pleasures and delights beyond my comprehension, because I will be physically in the presence of the expressed glory of God himself? Or is death the robbing of me, of so many experiences and pleasures still to be had here? I fear at times that my heart has given up a degree of sound theology of eternity. Because often, often, I fear losing things here in this life. 
whereas all in this life is but brokenness and shadow. It is like I cling to an old cracked and hazy mirror that catches a glimpse of a world-famous painting rather than throw it to the ground and run toward the very image that the artist was attempting to paint in the first place. But how many of you are like me? Wanting so many experiences out of this life, believing that eternity is indeed real, but certainly isn't really life. How many of you are like me, who are like an orphan clinging to his orphanage because he has not yet gotten to explore the attic and the basement? When there awaits for us a home of beauty and joy that our minds cannot fully fathom. Eternity, my friends, is a place that will be and feel more real than any of our normal Tuesday afternoons. Than our most visceral and impactful experiences in this life. Why? Because Christ was raised as a man. We will not be raised up as angels. We will not be raised up as disembodied spirits, nor some kind of thing or being totally different and devoid of who I am. Rather, Christ was raised as a man in glorified flesh to real and true life. Thus, those that are in him are guaranteed to rise as well in the same manner as he our first fruits. They will have a real and physical body and dwell eternally and physically with the Lord of glory. And this is the very point that Paul is going to expound on later in this same chapter in verses 35 on. He gives vivid examples of what it means to be raised to life. Ah, but we're not going into our resurrection. We're in Christ. So that waits another day. Therefore, Paul makes the point that Christ being raised to life as a man shows us the type of future resurrection that awaits for those who belong to him. Take a second. This isn't to say that there will not also be a physical resurrection of those who do not belong to Christ. We know. We know because of passages like John 5, 28 through 29, that those who are resurrected not in Christ will also be raised, bearing the physical body. That those who are raised to judgment and eternal punishment are not raised to be sent off to some imaginary or pseudo-life of torment. Rather, they are raised with physical eternal bodies well fit for the torment that they are raised to endure for all of time. We know, indeed, that hell is a physical place where those who reject Christ will spend all of eternity in the woe of their rebellion. Let it be over our dead bodies. One theologian says in helpful imagery, when the archangel's trumpet sounds, 
the bodies of believers shall come out of the grave to be made happy as the chief butler came out of the prison and was restored to all his dignity at the court. But the bodies of the wicked shall come out of the grave as the chief baker out of prison to be executed. Raised from death to true death. So we know this point clearly. From Paul's use of the first fruits. That as sure as Christ was raised as a man, so it is sure that man will rise in the same manner. Christ being raised to life as a man shows us the type of future resurrection that awaits those who belong to him. But how is this so? Paul continues, and it brings us to our third point. Christ being raised to life as a man shows us how there can be forgiveness of sins and a future resurrection. He says in verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Here Paul dives deep, deep, deep down into theology to explain what's taking place. And though this is deep in theology, it is really altogether quite simple. Here he says that there are two representative heads that all people Everyone who is born is born under the headship of Adam. Meaning, Adam, when he was in the garden, as he sinned against God, he did not do so solely for himself. Rather, he did so as the representative for all of mankind. As one lyricist sings it, this, my soul, you were born into what this man has done. It all extends to you. This means, my friend, that in the moment that Adam sinned against the direct command of the Lord, so also then at that very moment, we all sinned. Each one of us is bound into that figurehead. Each one of us then is equally, spiritually dead. When Adam sinned, we sinned. Well, then that's not fair, we say. Why is it that Adam gets to be such a lousy head and I'm blamed for his actions? Well, let me put it before you, as unfair as you may think this to be. I will bet that you do not disagree with the principle as a whole. For it's a principle that we actually live with on a daily basis. Let me give you an example. I'm proud of this one. I'm being relevant. There has recently been a large sporting event that took place. That left an impact on this town, did it not? Mm-hmm. And at this sporting event, an entire town of people from Stephenville got the opportunity to express in living color that which and that who they worship. 
At this sporting event, the Stephenville football team was credited as winning. Am I correct? Now, I've heard it with my own ears, and I'm sure you have as well. But what was said on that day of victory in the houses and stores and in the text messages around this town? We won. Ah, Wait a minute. I wasn't present at the event, so I, I genuinely cannot say for sure. But I would hazard a guess that though they are very athletic, many of the husbands and fathers in this room did not put on those stinky little plastic pads, wiggle into those tight little capri pants, and run out on the field to score a touchdown. I'll hazard it. So why on earth would someone who did not play a second in the game go about saying that they won? Now, let's just assume that for a moment you're present and you're one of the more cantankerous variety. So you may respond, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say we won. I would say my team won or the high school team won. Nana nana boo boo. Well, to that I say, is even that so? Did, in fact, every single player who was on the Stephenville team play during this game and do so in such a manner that were they not playing, the team would have lost? We must unfortunately conclude that no, they did not. Why? Because there were many, in fact, most likely a majority of the players that had very little or possibly even no playtime. I mean, no offense to the game that took place a week ago, nor to those who briefly cared very deeply about the outcome of the game. But here's my point, nonetheless. We live constantly in the reality of a representative head. We like fish in water. Don't even notice that we do it. When one is a representative and they do something, it is attributed and applied to all those who align themselves with that representative head. I was listening to one pastor, he's up in Canada, and he was describing an event that took place. Canada was going to get their first Chick-fil-A. That was a, a special day for some. And so what took place? Pickets, protesting. The welcoming in of this chicken establishment. Why? Because Chick-fil-A has a representative head. Well, unfortunately, a bunch of churches also went out to picket their pickets, so it's just a bunch of foolishness. But nonetheless, we live in this, do we not? This, my soul, you were born into. What this man has done, it all extends to you. Oh, in Adam we are all counted dead. In Adam we have all sinned. Now, Paul is going to show us why not only is this perfectly fair, but why this is amazingly good news. Because there is no longer just Adam. There is a new representative. For in the same manner as the sin and death of Adam has fully and immediately been extended to me personally. Now the life, the obedience, 
the death and yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the new Adam is able to extend to sinners who have nothing to offer God but sin. There is a new race of man. The new representative head has done it. He has made a new way. Where the old Adam brought death, says Paul, Christ has brought resurrection. Where the old Adam, in him, all die, in the new Adam, all are made alive. You see, Jesus' resurrection does indeed show that sins have been forgiven. And most certainly does it show us the type of resurrection that awaits those in Christ Jesus. But how is this so? It's not because Jesus is a loving God that winks at our sin. It is not that he just wants everyone to get along and go about their merry way, giving him some lip service and not an inch of their heart. It is not because God just wants you to pray a prayer when you're a little person, and as long as you were heartfelt, then when you prayed it, you're good. All of that is absolutely non-biblical nonsense. It's because Jesus is a man. It's because he was born a man. He lived as a man. He died a man. And now he has been raised to life as a man. And he will remain eternally a man forever reigning as the resurrected creator king. Now all those who would call upon his name for salvation and walk abiding in him until the end are reborn into a new representative head. All who would see their sin and shame that we in Adam and willfully beginning at our birth are dead in sin, dead and unable to self-resuscitate, willfully against the one who made us and who deserves our heartfelt worship in every aspect of every area of our life and being. Those who would see that they are sick and would call upon the true physician. That all who would call upon his name to be crucified with him and to be raised with him in new life would be born into the new representative man, Christ Jesus. How beautiful is the cure in the eye of one who cannot live without it. How bitter is the medicine to the one whom has no understanding of the cure that it brings. Here we see our third point. That Christ being raised to life as a man shows us how there can be forgiveness of sins and a future resurrection. It is because this my soul you were born into what this man has done. It all extends to you. This is the good news of the resurrection. This is the significance that Jesus, the word eternal, was raised to life as a man. Therefore, the resurrection of the dead is not simply important but it's indivisibly unified to the message of the gospel. Here is where we see the absolute hope of those who are in Christ Jesus. 
and the hope that they have truly in him. With this, I want to give you three invitations. Number one, assess for me. Do you belong? Have your sins been forgiven? And here's the invitation. Would you belong? Is this true of you? I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer once. Not do you go to church and try to do better. Not do you logically agree and intellectually assent that there is a God, that he killed Jesus, his son, and now you want to stay out of hell, you're happy to let him take the fall for you. No, I I ask about what Paul says here in verse 23. Then at the coming, those who belong to Christ, Do you belong to him? Not in part, for there is no serving of two masters. We will hate one or love the other. You are either in your sin in Adam, or you're born anew in Christ. There's no middle ground, no medium. I invite you today, my rebellious and self-righteous friends, would you belong to him? Would your life finally be crucified that you might finally raise to new life in hopeful expectation of the new body that awaits? I quote one last time. You didn't know I've quoted him. I've quoted him already, sorry. Thomas Watson. He says, judge not holy weeping superfluous. Tertullian thought he was born for no other end but to repent. Either sin must drown in repentant tears or the soul burn. What would the damned give that they, have, that they might have a herald sent to them from God to proclaim mercy upon their repentance? What volleys of sighs and groans would they send up to heaven? What floods of tears would their eyes pour forth? But it is now too late. They would better keep their tears to lament their folly sooner than gain the Lord's pity. Oh, that we would therefore, while we are on this side of the grave, make our peace with God. Tomorrow may be our dying day. Let this be our repentant day. Oh, would would you belong? For this Savior, this head, is available to you. Turn to him. My second invitation. Would you live in the hope of the resurrection? This life is filled with difficulties. Troubles abound. Temptations cling to everything that our hearts could possibly long for. I ask you, friends, would you live in the hope of the resurrection? When physical ailment strikes your body, would you hope in the coming resurrection? When traitors strip your heart of joy, leaving only bitter resentment, would you turn your hope, bend to the joy that comes on the near horizon? 
when temptation to sin will not relent, would you turn your words, your thoughts, your actions, your desires, your motivations, and everything else inside of you to the promised, lasting satisfaction found forever in Christ Jesus with Him? I simply invite you who are in Christ Jesus. Would you live as if the resurrection were true? Would you live in the hope of the resurrection? My final invitation. Would you meditate on the man that we have in Christ? Possibly you're tired. Possibly this Christmas season has only been wearisome for you. Possibly the resurrection has very little appeal to you, for it lies so far off, so untouchably distant, that to take hope in such a thing would feel as if you were trying to hope in an army that will arrive too late to save you from the invading hordes. You may be thankful that the resurrection will eventually come true, but to see it as truly affecting your life here and now, Seems like telling my lungs to breathe underwater. It's simply purposeless. To you, I simply invite you to do this. Would you meditate on the man we have in Christ Jesus? What a man is this? What a man that is God eternal yet struck his soul with humiliation for sinners. What a man is this that would live selflessly for me, the wretch that would happily pierce the nails through his flesh. What man is this that though having life within him, chose not to have his life taken, but to lay it down willingly. What a man, when his lungs had begun to rot, chose to take them up again and fill them full, never to empty again, that I might breathe new life. When his throat had parched from days of stagnation, decided to swallow our sin and pour out living water to those who could never drink it on their own. When his flesh was tattered beyond recognition, what a man is this that would once again put such tattered and ripped flesh back upon himself in the heavenly body, in the body of flesh that he will bear for all eternity, which will act as a forever reminder of the lamb who was slain. My invitation to you, my weary friend, my numb friend, my hopeless and apathetic friend, oh, would you meditate on the man we have in Christ Jesus? Would you meditate on this man day and night until your heart would know joy again? We've looked over this past five weeks at the word become flesh. We venture during this Advent season to gaze into the majesty that is this God-man, fully God, fully man, to peer into the implications of what it means for Christ to be born, live, die, and raise as a man. And now, we end this Advent series 
and I've been meditating on how to conclude this time. I've known from the beginning that it would be my, my privilege. And so I've been, I've been trying to think through what are some of the ways, what are the little applications to these theological truths that we have studied, that we have discussed. And it hasn't actually been difficult because it's hard to come up with some. It's, it's been difficult because of the sheer quantity of possible applications. Therefore, I leave you simply with this. Whether you have been here only today or for every week this series. Not serious. How has this study changed you? Do you stand in awe at the magnitude of God's glory in the incarnation? Does your heart rejoice and stir at the opportunity to consider others more important than yourselves as Christ did? Do you rejoice more deeply that the blood of this man has cleansed you of the sins you are ever growing more aware of? Do you put your hope day to day in this temporary life, activities, joy, and experiences here? Or does your heart cling to the promise of true life True life lived in eternal intimacy, in utter presence and unending joy with him. How has this study changed you? I can't tell you what the right answer to this question may be, or what your answer ought to be, but I can tell you what it oughtn't be. I oughtn't be the same that I was five weeks ago. I oughtn't have no, cho- no change, no growth, or no difference. May we always be being sanctified, always growing, as the Lord's d- word does what it says it will inevitably do in the heart of those who belong to the word made flesh. And if your answer is, I'm the same, Christ's grace came for people just like me. His grace is sufficient. Turn this day to the Lord and ask again that he would work in your heart to grow you in love for him. Then run after him today and every moment after. Meditate deeply on what we have heard this Advent and refuse to allow your heart to settle for lesser lovers. Oh, might we love with our whole heart this man the word become flesh let's pray father god thank you so much for the grace that you have given in christ jesus Lord, might those of us who are in you stand ever humble at the magnitude of your coming to redeem sinners. Lord, might we as the chiefs of sinners run into the world 
into our families, into those who claim to be believers but live in complete contestation of the gospel. Might we run into this world And Lord, might we cry out the beauty of your salvation. Oh Lord, would you change us as we have seen you, the true man, Christ Jesus. Lord, would you conform us to your image. Might we better be a light to the nations about us. Lord, I pray that not a soul would be untouched by your word today. And Lord, as your word only does two things, I pray that it would only soften hearts this day. And Lord, let it not do its other function to harden hearts already cold and turned away. Oh, Father, would you melt us like wax before you? Might the life in you be the only true life that we've seen. Might it be the very reality that we live according to. Lord, might your word be the very breath we live by. The lens through which we interpret all of life. And Lord God, would you let us hold fast as we await to the hope of the resurrection, that this is but a shadow. One day, those in Christ, we come to you, and we begin our true life. We pray these things, Father God, in Jesus' name, amen.